This week, the staff had our Christmas party. So I want to start by saying thank you for, on your behalf, the personnel committee catered a really beautiful lunch for us. You all love your staff very well. Jared and I hosted the lunch in our home, and before we ate, I asked Joey if he would play a hymn for our blessing. And he picked the hymn that we sang today as our opener on the third Sunday of Advent. Prepare the way, O Zion, your Christ is drawing near. Let every hill and valley a level way appear. I don't know if it's a peppy hymn or if our piano at home is so out of tune that Joey was hurrying it along to put us out of our misery, but we all finished the hymn sort of breathless. At which point, Dennis Dalkey, who loves this church so much that he is still doing some part-time facilities work with us, and who grew up a Methodist preacher's kid, Dennis said, well, that's not a Methodist song. <laughs> I assured him that when he and his wife, Becky, join this church next month, he'll be Presbyterian and get to sing it every year. And we do sing it because that hymn reminds us of one of the Christmas story's most indispensable characters, John the Baptist. Two weeks ago, Jarrett told us of John's parents. Remember Zechariah, the priest who went into the holy place with his threadbare prayer for a child and came out silent. Well, Zechariah is married to Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin. When the angel of the Lord drops the news on Mary that she too is expecting and with God's own son, Mary immediately runs to Elizabeth, her trusted cousin. Both pregnant at the same time, they process the news of God turning the world upside down. So it's no wonder that John and Jesus grew up close. The scriptures speak of John the Baptist as the one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John is the messenger who goes ahead to make the way for Jesus, who's coming right behind. So of course we sing John's song, breathlessly and urgently at this time of year. We join John in saying, prepare the way for Christ's coming. We listen to John's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand so that we can get ready for it to break in. We remember how John pointed to Jesus and said, there, that, behold, that is the Lamb of God. And Because of all of this, I want to warn you that our scripture today is going to sound odd. Because John the Baptist, he doesn't sound like himself. As we approach this text, I invite us first to pray. Speak a word we need to hear, O oh God, and settle us into a place where we can actually hear it. Hear it and have it transform us. Amen. Listen with me for God's word from Matthew chapter 11. 
When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with a skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good things brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John's question haunts me. Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? He sounds exhausted. Like, please tell me that all of this has not been a complete waste of my time. It's reminiscent of the parent asking the doctor, is that the best treatment plan you have? Or is it time to get a second opinion? Or the spouse asking, do our vows, do they still mean what they once did? Or have you already made up your mind that it's over? Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else? He asked the question from prison. John used to be wild and free and baptizing people and eating artisanal locusts far off the grid. Thanks. He used to feel the water and sand of the Jordan pool around his toes. But now his reality is just four walls, dark, lonesome. But I don't think his question is self-pitying. Outside his cell, the world didn't look to John any more redeemed than it had when he first went into the desert to start his ministry. Prophet Isaiah must have had it wrong. The crooked paths weren't any straighter. The rough places, not any smoother. The mountains and valleys were just as high and low as they always had been. If the Messiah had come and made any difference at all, John could not see it. All he could see was that Herod was still on the throne, doing just as he pleased. Now, I am aware that we lit the pink candle on the wreath today. Pink one is the candle for joy, and it burns bright, as it should. But what if, what if alongside that bright joy, there was no room for doubt? What if there was no room for disappointment? What if John had never asked? Scholar and teacher of preachers, Anna Carter Florence, in her new book, says that John the Baptist believed that his haunting question was worthy of respect. He didn't bury it. He voiced it and expected to be addressed by God in return. Anna said, sometimes that is the bravest thing 
a person of faith, can do. As a parent who brings her children to church, okay, as a parent who hires a babysitter to bring her children to church, there are many conversations about what's allowed here. No, you cannot chew gum in church, I'd say to my girls. But sure, wear your sneakers with your Sunday dress. It's fine. No toys that make noise for the love. But yes, a book is a good, quiet choice for for the pew. Go for it. John asked, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? What if we were never allowed to ask this? What if we were never given permission to ask hard things in church? Many scholars tell us that the significance of this moment in John's imprisonment is that mainly it foreshadows Jesus' own. And those scholars have a point. For like John the Baptist, Jesus will eventually be arrested and executed. John prepares a certain path for Jesus to walk. And if I understand the text, John also prepares Jesus for a certain reality of the heart. For the time will come when Jesus too will question his life, question his ministry, question God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for somebody else? John, from the depths of his cell, and Christ, from the height of the cross, they hold nothing back from God, and thus they prepare the way for us. For those of us who at one time or another have struggled to see, struggled to see the peace or hope or joy or love of these lights. They prepare the way for us, for those of us who feel like we're living in some kind of prison, or for those of us who have to really squint to see the presence of God. One of the things I love about this text is that when John asks this haunting question, Jesus does not shut him down. He doesn't say, how can you of all people ask me that? There is no shame, not one ounce. Jesus simply says, go and tell John what you've heard. Go tell him what you've seen. Go and tell him, not go and convert or convince or coerce him. Just go and tell. Tell him that the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. I wonder, church, I wonder if we could participate in that kind of telling. What if we simply described where life is punctuated by the holy? 
What if we noticed and named where this story of God's love touches down for us, around us, in spite of us, through us? How in this little corner of Chapel Hill, how 300 meal bags were packed and delivered to food-insecure students in the Chapel Hill Carborough schools. How hordes of curious Presbyterians showed up a couple of weekends ago to hear some Sunday school lectures on what is happening in Gaza because our hunger for peace is so strong. How, in this place at least, how mental illness and addiction and dementia and grief, they're not barriers to giving or receiving love. How friends drop off meals in coolers on porches or at the end of driveways for loved ones who are transitioning to health or to heaven. What if we went and told what we were noticing about the presence of God in our midst? Last week, I got an email from a UPC member. His name is Bob Rizzo. He comes to 8.30. He sits back there. He shared with me an article from NPR about Oxford University's Word of the Year. Now, because I am decidedly uncool, I had never heard of the word. The word is riz. Anybody? Riz? Some people are smiling. Of course, this made Bob Rizzo very proud, (laughs) and rightfully so. The word comes from charisma, which no one would accuse the Presbyterians of having much of. (laughs) NPR said that riz is about your energy and your ability to connect to other humans. But when you do a deep dive into the etymology of charisma, you will learn That charisma is a spiritual gift. It's a power divinely conferred. And the Latin charis means grace. So perhaps we Presbyterians could have a bit of riz. Not the kind that will help us feel at home in the middle of a party. That's fine too. But the kind that would enable us to go and tell about the grace that we have experienced. Jesus' response to John's question, it does not remove the darkness. John is still in prison. Herod is still on the throne. Jesus will face the cross. But when Jesus says, go and tell him that the blind see and the dead are raised and the poor have good things, he is pointing to the light that shines in the midst of the darkness. Light that no darkness can ever overcome. So what if? What if we joined in to say the table is open. The children are welcome. The love is unconditional. The light of joy, it still flickers. 
And the grace of God, the grace of God is big and sturdy enough to hold the most haunting questions of our hearts.